Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast showcasing and exploring how we define and create safety in a world without police and prisons. I'm Kiss. I'm Dama. And every month, the two of us host long-form interviews with movement workers across the world who have created community-based safety projects that expand our ideas about what keeps us safe. Basically, we're here to celebrate the work already happening to build solutions that are grounded in transformation instead of punishment. We are so happy to not be alone in this project. We are partnered with the phenomenal Interrupting Criminalization um, that has spearheaded and launched this One Million Experiments platform. And we want to bring in our co-host and becoming super homie. You, you are, you are <laughs> like part of the team. We got Eva back with us again. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling stoked to be part of the team and and a homie. Thanks for having me back, guys. No, you're you're right on the brink of confidant. Like we're we're, we're flirting with that line now. He's <laughs> uh, the next uh, season of One Million Experiments is going to get a uh, real. <laughs> As if this wasn't real enough, uh, Eva. Can you tell us who we're talking to today? We're so excited to invite Tamara Manasa of Mask, Mothers and Men Against Senseless Killings um, to this episode. Mask uh, was founded by Tamar in 2015, and she'll tell us a little bit about how exactly it started. But Mask, you know, was made to be a way to put eyes on the streets, to interrupt violence and crime, and to teach children to grow up as friends rather than enemies. So we're so excited to talk to Tamar about how she went from a lawn chair to encompass all the programming that Mask now does in Chicago. This was really exciting. And in the conversation, you'll hear some of that energy and gratitude uh, because Mask has been really important and I think somewhat of a, a symbol, a beacon, and almost almost like a mythology <laughs> in Chicago, particularly in, in people concerned with violence and policing and the intersections of those violences. Um, you know, they are doing what everyone imagines is needed <laughs> on the most basic elemental level. Uh, so really grateful to have the time to chop it up with her, to kind of go in through some of the results and data of this going on now seven years of, of just being out on the block. Um, we've been clamoring to talk to her for a long time, but I'm really glad that it happened at this time where we have one million experiments as a container and a platform to have this conversation. And it's exciting to be talking about transformational work that I think should inform abolitionist movements from a space or a person that may not like identify as capital A abolitionist and figuring out where some of that divergence and diversity of language, understanding of tactic can really make our grasp of creating a new world more tangible. Mask's philosophy of change in their work really mirrors a lot of what One Million Experiments embraces. Tamar says that transformation starts when there's less hopelessness, when we see small things start to work, then we can tackle bigger things. It goes back to another thing that Tamar says that I think is really helpful in this episode and with One Million Experiments in general, and it's that it doesn't have to be harder than this. And with that, let's hop in the lab with Tamar Manasa. Welcome back to One Million Experiments. We are so excited today to be on the line, in conversation, learning from the incomparable Tamara Manasa. Yeah, yeah. 
Hello out there. <laughs> I love a direct to listener conversation. That's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. So in that direction, we we um in all of our conversations, we have a little tradition of a two-part question we like to warm up with, and it's centered around time. Uh, so in this time and define time however you want, hour, this conversation, this day, this season, this lifetime. But in this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world tomorrow? Oh my goodness. Like it's treating everybody else. I'm I'm scared to death. It's nuts out here. The world has just changed a lot for me during the pandemic. I mean, it hasn't changed a lot for the people like, you know, on the block, but it's changed a lot for me. And um, I'm, I'm adjusting to this, this new life, new America, this kind of new way of living. So, I mean, how's it treating me? Like a deadbeat baby daddy. No, you don't want to see that. <laughs> How am I treating it? Hopefully better than that. I mean, that's the best way to answer this question. You can edit that out and leave it in. Do what you will that's with that. It's not going anywhere. Have no, at that's it. Not going anywhere. Have at it. So as much or as little as you want to share, I think part of what we do want to talk about is the way that uh, your work has shifted you know, in in the time of pandemic and over the last couple of years. Um, but before we get to that, our, our kind of clunky metaphor through this whole One Million Experiments project is using the language of an experiment. Like a science experiment, mm-hmm. like chemistry class. And as people who did terrible in science, we've been struggling throughout, but we're getting better. We're learning our, our terminology, <laughs> all that. Um, so let, let's start with the hypothesis. Um, if we jump back to whether it's 2015 or wherever you mark this chapter of work starting, what for you was the hypothesis of this experiment that has been MASK? I tell you my hypothesis. <gasps> it was that if you put parents in um, the middle of gang war zones, it will stop everything. It would save lives. The idea was kids will do all sorts of stuff. People in general are um, just not as honest as they are when they're being watched. So the idea was if I knew where there were gang beefs or something like that, if I take these mothers there, no one wants their mother looking through their stuff in their room. No one wants their mother looking under their bed, looking at their text messages, swiping right. No one wants their mother to do that. Trust me, I don't. My mom <laughs> went in my drawer and found the picture I had printed off a web page of the rapper Trina See? in 2005. <laughs> Oh, that no. was like my little go-to little. Her head like, exploded. Yeah, no, nah, she she Her was head exploded. A, she was a snooper, and like I had to find different hiding places. <laughs> Kids really hate to have their privacy invaded. They hate it. So, if the shooters are 15, 14, 17, I know how to deal with those kind of kids. My kids were that age at the time themselves. So, if I know that a shooting happened on one block. I know chances are whoever it was that was sh- they were shooting at or who got shot, they knew who did it. They're going to go back and they're going to retaliate. And then that's when the cycle starts because they're going to come back and hit the same block that they hit the first time because those people went and hit their block. That becomes a cycle, right? But if you put people on any of those corners, any of the corners on either block, it disrupts everything. Because nobody can come and shoot somebody if it's 10 moms sitting on the corner wearing hot pink T-shirts and cooking dinner. Like, you can't do that. It's just really honestly like being in the way. And then every day you're there and you establish this. This is my corner. 
we have a routine every day we're here everybody knows it's the safest place to be um you're gonna come here you're gonna eat dinner we're gonna talk about your life we're gonna do all of these other things this is what it became and it kind of morphed into something a lot bigger than what i was thinking i was thinking hey you know we'll go here this week and then we'll move and go to another block next week but once i got there it got so deep i really started getting into basically the layer cake called gun violence. It's all of these things that conspire to create gun violence. Like you need all of these different things to make a cake. But if you don't have eggs, you have everything else, then you have something, but not really a cake. If you have flour, you, you know, you don't have no flour. You have something, but not really a cake. Kind of like if you give kids access to quality educational opportunities, gun violence goes down. Who would have thunk it? If you make sure they have somewhere to sleep at night and they are homeless, gun violence goes mm -hmm. down, right? If you're the one feeding them every night and they are out stealing or, or trying to rob somebody to pay for a meal, gun violence goes down. So if you're addressing food insecurity, homelessness, lack of job skills, lack of opportunity, if you're addressing these issues, you're going to change the numbers. Now you're addressing all the issues that was causing it. and so. I stayed because I kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into it. It was always another cause, another cause, another cause. It's the, it's the drug use. It's the broken windows. It's all of these other things. And you just think about like, hey, we got to get the guns. Yeah, the guns are the least of your problems. Yeah. So to that layer kick analogy, which I love. Yeah, um, we're in that now. <laughs> what layer were you able to to see before you sat down on the corner? And then what was that process of the layers emerging for you and your own thinking? I saw what everybody else was seeing. I saw what happens on the news, which is honestly not even, I mean, that's like the cherry on top of the layer cake. It's, it's nothing. It doesn't even scrape the surface. It just, it shapes your idea and your opinion about certain people. Yeah. That's all it does. It feels like it moves people further away from imagining real solutions. Exactly. It does. It does. Because if you keep seeing on the news that it's this neighborhood, it's back of the yards, it's Inglewood, it's uh, Lawndale, it's, it's kind of like, okay, those places are the problem. Yeah, those places aren't the problem, though. And the people in those places aren't the problem. Look at what's going on inside of those places. Nobody ever really looks at that part. Right. So I knew that it was going to be a problem when they closed down all the public high schools in Inglewood. How could it not be a problem, right? You have all of these kids who are coming out of eighth grade from neighborhood schools and they have no homeschool to go to because you closed down all the schools. How about you bust the kids from Inglewood down to Jones or up to Walter Payton or Whitney Young or something like that, but you tell them they can go to schools that are already almost overcrowded and failing, right? So you can travel through eight different gang territories to risk getting to the school that's not your home school that's going to either be overcrowded or underperforming when you get there. Oh, and then you risk getting murdered on the bus stop on the way there, of course. So many kids were saying, I don't want to do that. It's not worth it. So you didn't have kids that dropped out. You had eighth graders who never even dropped into high school. They never started. Where did all those kids go? Right. And it's like nobody thought about that. Or maybe they did and they just didn't care because they didn't talk about it enough on the news. So nobody would even pay attention to it. I'm really appreciative because the way you're talking about news and me, and particularly like local news. So we're talking two, five, seven, you know, the, the, the local NBC channels, the way in which 
the conversation of violence in Chicago has been packaged and distributed to Chicagoans, but even to the whole world. One, it's profit-based, right? It's 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 like white entertainment at, at a basic level. But it's also this like political irresponsibility of like not wanting to speak about who's culpable. So I get really angry, sad, and hurt when I watch news and when I go in public places and see that people watch it every day and are understanding the world through this lens and prism. Yeah. And so as a critic... Well, I'm, I'm calling myself that right now. I'm not formally <laughs> actually a critic. As a person that criticizes a lot of shit. Um, <laughs> that, makes you, that makes you a critic. Yeah. I might yeah. be a critic. I, as a critic of, of, of media and information channels. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I try to ask myself, what would a more humanizing, holistic, honest depiction of violence look like? Right, Because I think it is important that people understand that it's happening and we should not ignore it or should not not be discussed. But how? basically my question is, how should the local news appropriately package and process this information for people to be able to understand more healthily how we can address violence? You notice how maybe for the past year or so, when something happens, when someone gets shot or it's a shooting or it's a murder, something like that, right? They always say, uh, the state's attorney let this person out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're out on bond. And like they should have still been locked up. This wouldn't have happened if they were still locked up, basically. Yeah. That's, that's the that, message, right? That jail is the solution. It becomes e- evidence for incarceration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is how they frame it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So what if they start saying, well, you know, these people got shot because we closed these schools down and they didn't have nowhere else to go during this time of day. If, if we're going right? to try to draw connections to the causes, maybe we should draw it, connections exactly. to the causes. Exactly. Let's really draw connections to the real causes, right? If this guy would have had a job to go to this morning, if, you know, he knew how to read and he had a job to go to, then this wouldn't have happened. If somebody would have made sure that happened before he left elementary school, he might have a job right now, but he doesn't. So this is how he's surviving. We forced him into this. They don't talk about the failures of all of the other systems that led to that. They talked about all of the other stuff that's going on. Then perhaps it would be more healthy. Because people would say, hey, you know what, let's get on that. Let's try to address that. You know, if this is what's going to cause the problems, let's get out ahead of this. Everybody is just so reactive. It's nothing proactive being done. Mm. I'm I'm glad we're talking about the way these stories get framed uh, to people who aren't participants uh, in either side of, you know, trying to combat it or participants in the perpetuation of the violence because it's one of the reasons why after years of wanting to talk to you on a podcast I'm glad we're talking to you now um, because I, I've seen you know in, in the various ways whether that's press or the documentary that was made or, or just the the kind of ways that you've been brought into conversations and your work has been framed uplifted challenged all you know it's been part of this public sphere of the like capital D discourse around Chicago violence and so I'm curious for you, you know, having gone through not just the the participation in the work and the building of what happened on that corner, but all of this time talking about it over and over and over again. One, what feels like it gets left out or omitted from that story? And two, where are you at in talking about this now? Because you've been talking about it for a long time. What feels frustrating? What feels good? What feels like it's changing? It's uh, a great question. Over the past few months, I am of the mind that Chicago, honestly, we're doing politics and Chicago Bear football all wrong, (laughs) right? 
We both need the same thing. <laughs> we need somebody. I would have wanted a coach that was from Chicago, right? right? right, right. That loved Chicago. Mm-hmm. I want a Bears fan to coach the Bears, mm-hmm. right? I want somebody who has, you know, cried with us every year, who wants to win for us, for themselves, more than anything in the what world. What a great analogy. Right? <laughs> we're we're like, looking at a... Uh, that's what I need. A, a, remember that movie, Eddie, where Whoopi Goldberg ends up coaching the Whoopi... <laughs> Controversy noted. I need a super fan. Yes. Yeah. A super (laughs) fan to be the coach of the Bears, right? Just like I need a super fan of Chicago to be the mayor. We need somebody who loves this city, warts and all, who knows it, who loves it, who wants to see it be better. That is what we want, right? That's not what we have. That's not, we have a tourist Mm -hmm. who's like on extended stay. I believe personally, I'm telling people this now when they call me and ask me about violence. Let's go find the people who keep popping up and running for mayor and talk to them about it. Because they're going to run again, right? They're going to run it's gonna again. be the same clown car. Yeah. Exactly. So while people are afraid to drive on the expressway because they might get shot, while, I mean, the number you lose 800 people in a year, while you're worried about bullets coming through your living room window, let's go talk to them now. I want to hear your plan for how you're going to stop the violence now. I want to see what you're doing right now. Show your work, right? If it's good enough for math class, it's good enough for you, right? Because I'm sorry, two months before election day, you come up with this great plan um, for how you're going to stop the violence. You, You can do it. No one else could. You can do it. You can't do it. But people who only watch the news are listening to this very carefully crafted statement that somebody's put together for you because they know what people want to hear because they're afraid. And you're going to get up and you're going to say that at debates and you're going to say it at interviews and you're going to stand on that. But people who are out there in it every day, no, it's not going to work because how it's impossible. That can't work. When I hear you talk about more police, that can't work. That's not going to work. You know, you talk about um, what you're suing gangbangers now. Yeah, they ain't got <laughs> shit. That ain't going to work. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, the problem is they taking your shit. So how you going to sue them for some shit? For, for reference, for our non-Chicago listeners, one of the, the you know... Proposals. The new proposals uh, is that the city would uh, file civil lawsuits against gang members to seize their assets as part of a deterrence from uh, violence. They ain't got no assets. But somebody somewhere who has nothing, who has no understanding of this, who just watches the news, they think this is a great idea. Like, that's going to really fix them. Yeah, in what world? It sounds good to somebody, but to the people who are really in it, we understand this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And it also opens the past to, like, more civil asset forfeiture. So people who get swept up in it, all of a sudden they lose what they do have because it's legal for their stuff to be taken. Exactly. I mean, all 12 of those people who actually have something, yeah, they're going to be pissed off about this. That's what's going to happen. But there are all of these things that people throw out. I wrote an open letter to Rom and to Eddie Johnson one year. And I asked them, you know, I, I get you have this new plan um, where you're doing these surges with police, like, you know, on these on weekends. And I'm watching the police abuses on the block. I'm, I'm, I literally sit in the lawn chair and watch it happen every day. You need to come down here and sit on the corner with me and tell me, is this what it's supposed to look like? Is this what you plan? In theory, it's one thing, but in practice, it's a completely different thing because this is all wrong. 
But if this is what you planned, you know, perhaps you need to come and we need to discuss, you know, how this can be modified some. And like 12 days later, Rom like resigned. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we end this mess now, you know. It's, it's wild. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't even know. It's like, I mean, man, it's one hand or the other. It's like, do do we miss him now? <laughs> like, we don't, obviously, but that's how bad it's been since. <laughs> I mean, I think, honestly, bad leadership is worse than no leadership at all. Mm. This is like, like if you were in a restaurant, this is when you would be demanding to see the manager. <laughs> but there is no manager, right? It, that's what Chicago is like right now. Like, hey, you want to kill somebody, take them to Chicago, you can get away with it. It's kind of like, this is what I feel like every man for himself would look like. Yeah. Chicago. Yeah. So many poignant things, you know, really taking out this notion of how the news, the media pushes out this state-based propaganda that manipulates fear of an electorate that's not in the spaces most impacted for these non-solutions or anti-solutions. And I hear you saying like, you know, we don't have people who love the city at the top. Uh, and there's this apathy and we have this former prosecutor that's looking at the city as something to prosecute. And so, you know, I definitely think we need new leadership, but I think even there will even be limits to like the most loving people at the top. I feel like your work is so important because it starts to demonstrate what we need to build from from the ground, from the grass up. It's going to be bottom up. It's got to be bottom up. Like personally, I'm not one of necessarily the defund the police people. I'm one of the redistribute the money people, right? Well, could you just share what the, the differentiation of those would be? You know, because some people think when you say defund the police, defund the police, that means defund, don't pay them, get rid of them, right? We don't need the police. That's what most people think when they hear defund the police. I want to be very clear. There's still a need for police somewhere because they make somebody feel safe, right? The people that they... Um, protect from people like you and me, police make them feel safe. Not us so much, right? My thing is, I'm tired of my tax money going to paying for the police when it could be used better. Like us, what we actually do is we hire people from the neighborhood just like to do stuff, to come work in the school, to come clean up, to come help cook lunch, to do this, to do that. Any little thing we can find because people are so poor and it's so few jobs, even a little bit is better than nothing. So a little bit is better than the nothingness that they get now. So think about if you gave people a stipend and you made it basically for every time your neighborhood gets safer, when it gets safer, when crime goes down, you get paid more. So if it's your kid that's in the house, you know what your kid is doing. But if you're getting paid to help create a safer neighborhood, you got to make sure your kid don't raise all the hell that they normally raise because now it's tied directly to your purse strings. You let parents police their communities and things will change. In seven years on that corner, we've only called the police twice. And neither time was because we actually needed them for anything we couldn't handle on that block. And the idea is basically, you don't have to come here if we don't call you. You don't have to patrol. We don't need you driving up and down the street. We don't need any of that. If we don't call you, you don't come here. Don't come. Because you tend to make situations worse when you show up. If we do not call you, don't you come over here. You know, I mean, like if it's something like there's a gas leak or, you know, something like that. If there's sure there are things that we can agree upon. You need to call police when these things happen. Fine. But if it's a domestic disturbance or something like that, it's, it's two kids fighting on a corner. It's, you know, baby mama's got into it. 
let the community handle those things. If we need anything more than that, we'll call you. But it would save a ton of money on all of these, you know, wrongful death and and um, those kind of lawsuits, the abuse lawsuits that the police are slapped with every year. It would keep people alive because, hey, you aren't here to accidentally shoot anybody 16 times. You know what I mean? So we don't need that many police. You need to deputize the people in the community to do this. Pay them to do it. Give them a stipend. You don't have to pay them what you pay police, but pay them something because it's more than what they have now. And if they're getting something, they are going to be the ones to tell you. They're going to be because people will talk to their parents and other people in the community before they will the police. The streets talk. People always know who's doing what. The police are the ones who claim to never know nothing. <laughs> they do claim right? that a lot. They never yeah. know. They don't <laughs> they know, know shit. I am. Uh, I'm very excited to be at this point in the conversation because, like, this is this is what I wanted to get to. Just to be transparent, like. I, we, the show, like a lot of probably like the community closely connected to the show, we are the air quote defund the police people. And mm-hmm. like, I'm excited to have this more practical conversation uh, because I'm hearing much more agreement than like I think people perceive. Um, right. And, you know, th- the notion of one, just to like give a little bit of of like language history, the, the word defund police became like a, a chant like Twitter shorthand for a longer conversation of divest and invest. And so what what you are describing, right, is like the investment into a public community infrastructure for the type of presence that your space has embodied and like already made real. And also, I think a thing that you articulated that people don't hear when they get afraid of notions of abolition or defund uh, is that no one is saying like abolish 911 or no one is saying get yeah, rid of no. emergency response what we're saying is that you know a, a, a militarized carceral gang is actually not an effective response and what you're articulating is that it's a counterproductive response in the short term of like the actual cop that comes is not prepared to do anything and, and usually doesn't care and the idea that the government can herald somebody to be superhuman right like they're different than every other human being that exists but then also on a macro level the idea of we are going to rile up and incarcerate those who we blame for violence by the tens of thousands, year and year and year, generation after generation, collectively actually brings more violence and more disruptive relationships and fractured communities. It definitely does. Um, Absolutely. And so I, I'm so excited because a lot of times there's not enough space for people who are responding directly to be in conversation with people who are trying to like have these big picture ideas. And so I want to get into like the organization of it a little bit. Cause I feel like that's what we miss. Like you said, this is an experiment, right? right? Yes. It's an experiment. This is actually an experiment. Mm-hmm. The, I call the corner of the lab all the time. <laughs> yep. yep that's what we experiment. say. We're hopping in the lab. That's exactly what right. we say. And so in a lab, and it's like what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. Right. So, because we wanted to start getting pro- different programs, like pilot programs in like the local, like elementary school, local CPS school, right? But they really gave us a lot of pushback for that. So we built our own school out of shipping containers and we built these classrooms and we put them on the corner. So we have our own school, right? So in this school, you can teach whatever you want to teach. We can teach anything we want to teach. And my idea has always been, I don't think that gun violence is something you can legislate your way out of all the time. You got to educate your way out of it. So we talk to three-year-olds about guns. We talk to them about 
you know, what do you do when you get mad? Like you can't pick up a gun. We actually have these conversations. I mean, think about it. Kids were getting pregnant. So they put sex ed in high schools, right? It was driving fatalities. So we got driver's ed, right? So if we're going to have all of these damn guns, if everybody's going to get a gun, you get a gun, you get a gun, you get a gun, you're going to have to start talking about it in classrooms because you cannot take for granted that every parent at home is having the same talk with their kid. Just like you couldn't take for granted that all parents were teaching their kids to drive the same way or all parents were talking about sex with their kids. It's one of those things you got to teach everybody across the board about this. Because it's so many of them. It's concealed carry. You know, people have three and four guns. There are guns that look like toys, all sorts of stuff now. You know, parents can say, hey, you know what? My kid won't ever touch a gun. And they know better. No, they don't. They don't know better. And I've actually went on a hunt for officer friendly to come and teach these three and five year olds about it. To begin to mend the relationship between the community and the police. How'd that hunt go? Yeah, I'm still hunting. <laughs> So I want to go back to the class. You're like, okay. No, no, no. You're like, that's enough. That's, <laughs> no, that's no, not no, enough. No, that's not no, enough. No, 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 that's not no, enough. No, I, I want to I want to ask the, the so I want to put a pin in the the, cl- the class uh, session with the three or four year olds. But the, the, the relationship part with police, it feels like it gives them a lot of faith that I don't think they deserve when I hear that conversation. And that's why I'm hunting <laughs> because I've talked to a lot of police, uh-huh. right? But you can't find one who's going to say, you know what, I'm interested in being a part of that because I do feel like we need to work on that relationship, Mm -hmm. the relationship that we have with the people. Right. I mean, I think the story is kind of that I can't find one that's willing to Mm -hmm. do that. Right. Right? They don't think that way. And there is a dysfunction that exists within the police department. Like they need to like hug each other, do something. It's just all bad. Like they need to fix. Personally there. Yes. They need to fix what's going on internally before they can have a relationship with the community. It's kind of like, you know, get yourself right before you get in a relationship with somebody and ruin their life. Yeah. From, you know? from genuine curiosity, do you think that's possible? I, don't, I honestly don't think that they have the current or historical capacity to do that. Let me, let me tell you a couple things, a couple things real quick. My uncle was shot by a police officer when he was 14 in the back. He died from those injuries. And this was in the 1950s. when. 15 people were shot at that funeral on 79th. I was the one who went and told the police that they needed to be there and that there was going to be violence and that we really needed like some protection there because it was going to be really bad and they did not show up. And then the mayor and the superintendent got on television and said they didn't have any credible tips. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what they that's what they said. Like one a lie, but to such an insult to your face, (laughs) too. You know, how fucking dare you? What that is, is a civil rights violation. That's the way that I see it, right? If black people want to tell somebody, if you say, see something, say something, right? And somebody says something and you still don't do anything and then other people get shot, then something's wrong. You don't actually mean that. And the thing is, it happens with so many black people because this culture exists within the police department and just, you know, with police and period, this relationship we have. You actually put our lives in danger because we can't come and tell you when something is going on or something's going to happen. Nobody else. That doesn't happen to anybody else but us. But us. So if I came and I actually told you that this was going to happen before it happened and you still didn't show up and 15 people got shot, 
Tell me how that is not a violation of my civil rights and the civil rights of all of those people that were out there. Yeah, I agree. But that happens consistently. Like young people will tell me in a minute exactly what's going on, who did what. But then it's like, you know, now who do I tell? Because they aren't going to do anything. And so what people don't get when they see the news, they see a shooting on the news. They see somebody got murdered. They are seeing the beginning of a story that they're going to see again in six months. And they're seeing the ending of a story that started six months ago. So six months ago, there was a murder. Now, tonight, you see somebody else got shot. Chances are that person that you see on the news is the person that killed that other person six months mm -hmm. ago. And there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in between. In those six months, it's a lot of different things that happen. And just as I know that I see it, the police do too. And they don't do anything to stop it in that six months. It's almost like, you know, like a slow moving train wreck. Like you see it coming and it's nothing you can do to stop it because, hey, I'm not the police. Yeah. Well, to that point, um, you know, I think sometimes for people who aren't kind of in the in the mix and with feet on the ground in the same way, there's the sense of, oh, well, you're doing this, you know, quote, anti-violence work. This is, you know, if we're if they can't do it, here's this opportunity to step in. And what, what gets lost, I think, in that is this idea of scale. Dame, you mentioned this a couple episodes ago, and it's really shifted my thinking is this idea of finite abundance of like, maybe you should explain. It's your idea. I don't, I'm not going to quote it, but it seems yeah. relevant here. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the notion of like scarcity is not real, right? Scarcity is this projected thing. The world, humanity produces more than enough to meet our needs. But at any given time and space, those resources are also finite, right? So it's, it's not infinite. It's not forever. And so we have capacity issues. There may be distribution issues. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, maybe there are more, you know, people with more free time that are on the North side that don't give a shit, right? You know, there is enough abundance, but maybe on Saturday on 75th street, there's only three mothers and they have actual children that they have to, you know, deal with in addition to raising the community's kids. Right. So we're in this like tension and contradiction of, we have to believe in our capacity. We have to believe that more is possible and we can do more. But we also have to deal with the reality that lack is real. You're limited. That you are still right, limited. Right. Absolutely. And so I'm wondering how that, you know, in the years of doing this work, you know, it moves from being people sitting on a corner to building a school to all of the different things you've built in that space. How your understanding of lack and abundance and what you can give and what is too much has shifted because it seems like the kind of lessons that I could imagine learning and practice over time. Sometimes it's three of us. Sometimes it's 30 of us. Like you said, it's on the days when you can make it, right? It's always going to be at least one of us, though. Somebody from somewhere. And it's not just Inglewood and it's not just Grand Crossing. It's everywhere. We have people come from. I mean, Skokie, Winnetka, Wisconsin, just to come and sit on the corner, right? Me personally, I need everybody to feel like everything is everybody's problem. So you need to care about what happens to me on the South side, because if you don't care, eventually it becomes your problem too. You know, somebody said that's, that's a scare tactic. It's not a scare tactic. It's like real life. People like will call and say, well, how do you feel about all of the people, all of these kids getting shot? You know, why are so many kids getting shot? Because when the shooters shot adults, you didn't care then. You got to care about all of it because eventually it has a way of getting back around to you. Right. Like, I think another time where people have been taught not to care is 
the classification of gang versus innocent, right? Like that we care when there's an innocent victim, but if somebody was quote unquote in a gang, which they may or may not have identified as such, then it's it's normal or deserved or not even discussed often. Like that's just part of the the statistics of the reality. And like, what even is innocent? And who gets to tell the exactly. story of who's innocent and who's not? Who Who gets to say that? Sitting on that corner, I swear to you. I mean, when I first started, I honestly like, thought like, you know, okay, police aren't lying all the time. Right. <laughs> and I, I feel bad. I'm even saying that now. Right. But when I got there, like when I actually got out there, the first day I was there, police pull up and they say, Hey, you know, well, have you seen anything? Have you met such and such yet? He's supposed to be the one that's calling it around. He, he's the boss. And I'm like, why are you even talking to me right now? <laughs> I said, I'm here to do community policing. And that means that sometimes the community has to police the police. And right now, you might be going a little bit too far, okay? Pulled off. Our relationship went downhill after that. And that was the first day, and that was seven years ago. Mm. The fragility of that. Before I even meet any of these kids, you tell me about which ones are the ones that you should watch out for. And, And when I met them, it's like, nope, there's a story here. Now I understand. Now I get it. And then what happens when you become one of those kids, when the police start to see you as a part of them? Because that eventually happened, too. Say more about that. You can't really criminalize a white woman from, you know, like Highland Park. But you want to do it. When they're out there with us, you want to do it. If I'm there and you want to come and do your training day thing, but you can't do that because I'm sitting there watching you. And I have a video camera and everybody here, even the five-year-olds, everybody has taken out their phones and everybody's making a video about this. It's not them that you worry about. You worry about me more than you worry about them. It was like, you protect us. They can't make those kind of arrests when you're here. And my thing is, I'm not interfering. If this is a clean arrest, go ahead and take them. If they did something, go ahead and take them. But you better make sure every T is crossed and every I is dotted. Because we're watching everything. And so rather than go through all of the drama of trying to take people to jail while all of these mothers are outside and all of these women are saying, he didn't do anything, he's just over here, blah, blah, blah. They just stopped. Then it became almost an intimidation thing with me and the police. They wanted to chase us off of the corner because you can't go back to business as usual as long as somebody is watching you. We're watching you. You're watching them and we're watching you. I did a radio show one time and somebody called in and said, well, we hear that you give cover to the gangbangers. I said, well, are they shooting people? If nobody's getting shot, I think we should all give cover to the gangbangers. <laughs> yeah, the problem is people right? Can right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, honestly, who's to say they're gangbanger? Who says they're gangbangers? Do they carry your card? Like, are they card carrying members? How Do they pay dues? How do you know they're in a gang? Who says who's in a gang? Gangs don't even exist anymore the way that they once did. Just the idea of we got to get the gangs and we got to... What gangs? Which yeah, it's, gangs? It's some like 1940s Al Capone framing, right? This like movie cowboy right. shit. Or I would say it's 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 like 21st century war on terror. Like it's it's like the way they talk about terrorists. Oh, you know, there's a, a a gathering that's a wedding, and it's a. Do, it's do the terrorists carry a card? Do we have a, a right. terrorist card? Like, did I register? 
well, you were registered just a little. Exactly. That's how they tried they to, were there, was, there, was the, there was the gang registry mm-hmm. that criminalizes people by the thousands. Like, I don't like the word activist. Me neither. Because activist means that, you know, like people don't do anything because they're waiting on the activists to show up. No, 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 no. We should all be active in what goes on around us. We sh- This should activate all of us. There's no activist training school. There's no activist college. Like you don't go and take, you know, activist 101. Like that doesn't happen, right? There are these things that don't exist. And there's these labels that we have that don't even exist really. You know, people depend on that too much. An activist, hey, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to vote for this activist for whatever office he's running for because he's an activist. No, he's not. He's a dude that went and stood out in front of Walgreens one day and protested. (laughs) With a bunch of other activists, <laughs> with a bunch of other people who were activists, they are and activists, then ran for office. Right? right? Same thing with gangs. Mark Kirk, the senator, was on the block one day, and Mark Kirk said, "Well, you know, like what gang, you know, controls it around here? Like what gang is dominant? Who's like, you know, in control?" And I honestly, I looked around and I said, "Well, I think it's us. <laughs> I think we're the gang. I mean." <laughs> We got a corner. We got colors. <laughs> it might be us. Like, you know. We got this block on lock. <laughs> and, and that's what we start calling ourselves, the gang for good, right? A lot of subversion. You want to label people so bad, right? So bad. But there's no way to do that. It's the way that, that you once knew gangs. That's not who gangs are anymore. Gangs don't really even exist. No. Can you actually break that if down mind, for people yeah. who, that might be like what, new. Gangs? The gangs don't exist. Gangs are the monster under the bed. Gangs are who you need to blame for everything. But the thing is, gangs don't exist anymore. It might be blocks. It might be little cliques. And all of these little boys are all different things. Some can be BDs, some can be GDs, some can be Blackstones, Vice Lords, and they all hang out together. Because when you close the projects down and everybody just moved everywhere, that's what ended up happening. There weren't all of these defined boundaries anymore. It's not like that. Now you have clicks. You might have one block that's literally into it with the next block because it's not these big monolithic groups anymore. It's not like that. So if they talk about they're going to get the gangbangers, well, you kind of can't get a gangbanger if they don't actually exist. They're not there. That's not a thing anymore. You're basically just saying black young people is what you're saying. Exactly. And then you think about this whole RICO Act thing and the way the RICO Act works in Chicago. It's souped up from the one in New York. So you can't even really hang out with people. And, you know, nobody is going to say they're a gang leader because guess what? You're responsible for all of the murders that they say this gang committed. So there are no leaders and there are no gangs. So things are happening, but it's not really about that. And I don't think they get it. Yeah, the, the, the streets have been intentionally disorganized. It's chaos. It's it's fractured. And and, and I want to, I want to hone in a little bit on the, the organizing because what you're just, not only are you just brilliant and like saying wonderful things, but you're also like giving us a a narrative of like robust, holistic, 360 multidimensional organizing. You discuss cop watching, you discuss mutual aid and meals, you've discussed childcare, you've discussed education of like things that you make it sound so good. It is that you good. You did it. It is that good. so smart. Thank you. <laughs> I'll come make it sound fly all the time. I'll come do Thank you. Know, you. Yeah, we, we go post up. We go link. But, you know, in having some experience of doing those things spread out and having a few weeks or a few months of trying to do all those things at once, 
I have a real respect and maybe <laughs> maybe trauma <laughs> about how difficult it really is to organize people anywhere, specifically around the oppression of Black people, the lack of resources in our city, and you know white supremacy and policing and militarism. It's the biggest shit in the world, and everybody has a million other things going on besides this, right? Like we're dealing with the pandemic, we're dealing with you know all the comorbidities that existed before the pandemic that people are already struggling with, and so we're seven years in. And you still got people on the corner every day. What have you learned or what can you say about that level of organizing, coordination, commitment, consistency, system and structure building? Because I think people all over the city and country and world should be doing what you do. And I think people want to see more of what you do. But actually, even if they tried, couldn't without some of the, the mechanisms, skills, tactics that you have to develop on the fly you know, and through real experience. And, you know, honestly, it takes audacity. It does. And you got some of that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you don't know how many times I have, like, went to the block, like, fully prepared with, like, sweats on in the summer because I'm fully prepared to go to jail that day. But I got to make sure these kids eat lunch, that they get some food. So I might go to jail for that, but these kids going to eat today. And people like, well, why are you doing this? You know, why do you keep doing this? You know, it's going to get you in trouble. It's going to, hey, if I didn't do it, something else would get me in trouble. Okay. I'm black in America. Trouble is it's always with me. It's always right behind me. Right. So I would rather go down fighting a good fight than not. But you have to have the nerve for it. And you have to be honest enough. And I tell people all the time, be honest with yourself about how much you commit to it. You know, you might not want to show up. You might not want to come out there. You might be scared. You might, but you might want to be the one who will drop off food to people who are out there. You'll drop off books to the people who are out there. You'll do fundraising to to support the people who do sit out there. And I think that everybody really just needs to be honest about the level of commitment they want to make to organizing, to changing the world, because everybody is not on the same page. Everybody is not going to want to do the same thing. And there's a place in this for everybody. Like um, when during the pandemic, when we opened our classrooms, because we, I mean, we're in a neighborhood full of, full of like terribly, horribly paid essential workers. They had a choice of, I'm going to either leave my three-year-old and my five-year-old at home with my seven-year-old while I go to work, or I'm going to not go to work and lose my job so I can stay at home with my kids. That's an impossible choice. You know, we did a thing. You bring your kids to us every day. So March 20th, When the world shut down, we opened up, right? So we have kids every day. We're helping them with their remote learning. We are feeding them. We're doing all of these things from nine to five every day. Then online, we had an online study buddy component where Mm. people from all over the world signed up to help tutor kids who were doing remote learning during the pandemic. Oh, wow. Right? Now, some of those people, they wouldn't want to come necessarily to the block and help out, but they were still helping. There was still a way for them to help. And I think it's about getting creative with the ways that we can help out, right? Like, how simple, honestly, is it? I did an interview with the New York Times one time, and I'm telling you, it took me probably about two hours over like four phone calls to explain to this reporter what I was saying. I went to the corner. I had a lawn chair. I put it on the corner. I sat in it, <laughs> Right. With my, my friends had lawn chairs too, and we had our pink t-shirts. It was sunny in 85, and we sat on the corner, and 
then so then the the, the shooting just stopped yes that's what happened <laughs> oh let me not forget we fired up a barbecue grill because teenagers are always broke and starving so are you really saying food and lawn chairs <laughs> stop violence that's what i'm saying well how did you do it i'm saying i went and sat on the corner like like it has to be harder than this mm-hmm. it has to be something i'm missing there has to be a strategic planning right. and a grant and all yeah. Can you draw a diagram of what you How did? were the chairs arranged? Was it a semicircle? <laughs> a lawn chair, right. <laughs> exactly. Like you can't believe it's that it's that simple. So simple that anybody can do it. It doesn't take a degree to do this. I didn't go to activist school. Well, where'd you learn how to do this? Somebody had to raise me. Right. This is my grandmother and my aunts and my mother. This is what they did. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Lineage can, can we shout out your, your, your lineage of, of. Oh, that I was raised? Yeah. That somebody raised me? <laughs> not, not I know. Just, no, obviously. I seem like I was suckled by wolves. I get <laughs> yes, it. It's a raised by wolves type <laughs> <I> mean, situation. <laughs> no. I get it. The fact of. of it was hard. The fact for. of family is not the part. But, you know, part of what the, we want to do here is make space to celebrate that lineage. I got everything from my family. If it wasn't for the way that I was raised, I would not be doing what I'm doing right now. I wouldn't have the nerve to do it. I wouldn't even understand that it was important and I wouldn't have enough compassion Mm. for others to even do it. And another thing that's very important to me that has to do with family is genealogy. The idea of understanding not just where you came from, but from whom is very important to me. There was a study done in Chicago in the 80s. They said 70% of the black people on the south side of Chicago are related. Right. Seventy oh, percent. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, like I can never have another boyfriend. Ever again. <laughs> <laughs> right? like, are you serious? That's a tough one. <laughs> and, I'm going to have to go out west for love. That's what's about to happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. They all came from like the same places down south. Right. So I never let that go. And like, I've really been doing genealogy for like years and years and years. Like I'm super deep in it, like back to the boats, like in it. Right deep. And I do family trees for other people, for my friends and stuff like that, because it's what I love to do. And you would be surprised how many black folks are related that don't know it. The question for me is not who you're dating, it's who are you killing? And I'm going to do a thing on the block with the kids where I'm going to actually do a genealogy project with them to show them how they are connected. Because what if before you shoot somebody, you think about if this is your blood or not? What if this is your cousin? Would that give you a cause for pause? Just for a second. You know what I mean? Because so many of them are kin to each other and they don't even know it. That's so tragic to me. I mean, and that's another reason I'm really pissed off about being black in America right now, but I digress. But I grew up in a house with almost like my entire family. And my grandmother was still alive and my grandmother was kind of like, you know, like the big mama was that kind of thing. And I grew up with my whole family. I wasn't at home alone until I was 13 years old. I was never home alone, not once, until I was 13. I mean, who leaves 13-year-olds at home alone? Oh, my God. You're like, and I've dedicated my life to keeping an eye on 13-year-olds ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You never go through what I went through. (laughs) That's exactly how it went. Like, oh, no, I know it's rough out here. It's rough. But I went to Jewish day school, and I lived in Inglewood, but I went to school in High Park. One side of Washington Park versus the other side is two completely different worlds. It is a tale of two Chicago's. And for the kids in my Jewish day school, I represented pretty much every black person, right? 
because they don't live on the South side. They go to school on the South side. They live like on the North shore. And I became the embodiment of every black person. This is who black people are. So I had to be smart. I had to be this. I had to be, I had to be a lot of different things. But when I went home, I was a Jew. So imagine being a Jew in Inglewood. Do you know how many times this one lady told me one day, um, stop saying you're a Jew. The Jews killed Jesus and Jesus freed the slaves. Mm. And I was like, were you there? That's a big but jump. That's an Olympic level long jump there to conclusions. It, it, yeah. it was insane. And I was like seven years old. <laughs> That's also just a wild thing to say to a child. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. no, that also, you know what? It used to be crazy like yeah. that. The worst thing in the world is for a kid to come to your house and reject your food. So like I was like four and I would be like, this isn't kosher. I can't have this at another kid's birthday party. And it's like, well, what do we feed you? This is all we have. I want to go home. Call my mama. <laughs> I want to go home. Like, I want to go home. And and people sometimes really take that the wrong way. They are really offended when a child says, I can't eat this. It doesn't have a K or a U. Like no one said that, but it was like that for me. I was different. And the first kind of indicator of that for me was I couldn't eat with what everybody else ate. Then it became the difference in the way that I saw what was going on around me. Because every day, I didn't go to neighborhood school. I went to High Park every day. I used to see Harold Washington go to work every day. <laughs> every day. Do you know what a tool of empowerment that is for a Black kid? You go to a school and you're like one of the only ones that's Black in your school. And then you watch the first Black mayor of Chicago go to work every day. Mm. Oh, amazing for me. But Jews have... um Jews are very vocal people. Very. They are a vocal Some of them host podcasts. You know? Yes. <laughs> yes, they are, vo- they are very vocal. And I learned, like, sometimes there's a level of hopelessness that I see in the Black community that Jews just don't have. Growing up, I was able to identify problems. But being a Jew, at the same time, I always identify a solution. And not just do you find the solution. You have to find some way to work it. Like you have to do it. The Talmud says you have to do the work. You can't desist from it. You ain't got to finish it, but you can't desist from it either. (laughs) And, you know, like this is like what I grew up learning. So I see all of these problems that we have in the black community. And then being a Jew tells me, okay, you have to go fix it. If you see the problem, you got to now you got to fix it. You got to repair the breach. You got to tikkun olam, repair the world, right? So then you find yourself sitting on the corner of 75th Street for seven years. That's how this goes. That's how we have it. It's just like that. Right. That's how it goes. And it's kind of like, now, I don't know. If I wasn't Jewish, would I be motivated to do all of the things that I do now? Honestly, probably not. Probably not. Judaism has a lot of rules. A lot of rules. And I mean, on Yom Kippur, it's a real hard holiday. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's like, you know, like, God, just let me make it another year. I promise I'm going to get it right. You know, you're apologizing to people that you've wronged all year. Like, I feel like I need to do stuff like this every day just to make up all the bullshit that I've done in my life and that I continue to do on a daily basis. I got to do something good to balance it out. Right. So this is what I do. Being a Jew and being black and coming from where I've come from, I apply it differently. But it always made me feel like I had to do something. Yeah, there's a conversation for another show that I, I really want us to have around this. What do you say, Dan? I, I know you're 
<laughs> I know you're chopping at the bits. I just got to get this this line in real quick. I just got to go back to the Jesus thing, and then I want to throw it back to you because I I know you I know you got something for this. But but just to the Jesus line that 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 lady told you when you were seven. Yeah. First of all, I think we should just correct the record for any fact checkers <laughs> out there. <laughs> I might have been startled. Yeah, yeah. First that. of all, Jesus was killed by the cops. If anything, it was it was it the was Roman an state. Empire. Yeah. The police. Yeah. <laughs> Secondly. Slavery certainly continued for a really, really <laughs> long time. And thirdly, the thing in that conversation that I and I'll be throwing to you after this day that just throws me off is Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> so, so I was, not only no, is it no, not don't true. You say that. Don't, <laughs> don't you say I'm that? Mis- no, I'm, you, I'm don't mistaken. You tell them no, that. you're correct. Oh, you're but better not, a, not tell them not that a fan. Jesus was a Jew. Oh, don't tell the, the people you that don't realize. Not, you better <laughs> not. <laughs> you're like, you better. Oh, even you know if that, even I, if that were to be true. He is Jewish. Shut, so let's just <laughs> shut your mouth. Shut All right. your mouth. All right. I, I will. I will shut my mouth and I'll pass the, the plate. That's really <laughs> how that goes, though. And it does lead to these conversations. And like, I just became a rabbi in July and it took me 13 years to get there. And I'm like, oh, yeah, me and Jesus got the same job. That's what I was about to say. Feed the hungry, clothe oh, the poor. I, you know, it's just some that's some seventy fifth and steward shit. Oh, like I, he was I get so it. typical. He was such a typical Jew, right? <laughs> and it's like it's you cannot. These are things that you cannot say, but it does really inspire my work. But it's this spirit inside of me, and it is my ancestors. You know, people did extraordinary things to get me here. They lived extraordinary lives. They were strong people. We don't get to be the weakest link. We just don't. We don't. I mean, how much stuff they went through to get us here and now we ain't going to go through nothing. That don't make sense. I think there are lots of people that carry that, but I do think that that was something that at least, you know, I, I won't speak for anyone else, but for me was raised. Just, you have, you're a link in a chain. The chain has to continue. The, the, the line has to be held. You know? and, and how do you teach anybody how to do it? How do you teach your kids how to do it if you don't do it? Right. My grandmother, we lived in a small house and my whole family lived there. But I swear to God, if it was anybody like even like whole families, like they didn't have anywhere to go. My grandmother would like make room for them. Right. It's already like a 100 of of us here. Like we don't have any more room. It would be like people in like the bathtub. It would just be people everywhere. But it was never an instance of, you know, we're doing bad ourselves, so we can't help you. No matter how bad we were doing, we were always doing better than somebody else. And it's like I'm always reminded of that. I've never went hungry or broke trying to feed somebody else. Mm, that's. I want to defer kiss before. You're going back to Jesus. You want no, to I'm not going back to Jesus. I'm not going back to Jesus. I was going to say I just she's wanna... probably dead. She was 150 <laughs> when she said that. <laughs> she, she met him. She, <laughs> she dated Jesus. She, she, she knew him. That's why I she knew was. him. Oh, you, you mean Jesse? <laughs> Me and Jesse yeah, went exactly. together. Exactly. Yeah. We call him Jesse. Um, no, because I, I know I know this is just, just your wheelhouse. So before I, I have something for it, but I want to defer. That's fine. Okay, so I'm just, I, so let me just say there is another conversation for another show that I hope we'll be able to have. That's more about these themes and the way that this presents. Please and, ask un- about Whoopi Goldberg. Please. Have we now had two Whoopi <laughs> references? Whoopi reference. Well, I I gave a little like like <laughs> disclaimer aside of like, gonna, but there's a there's a project that we and and I'm working on that I hope to um 
talk with you for and as part of, which is around um, Black liberation movement and American Jewishness. That put you know, me this, this, in, Coach. We got absolutely. you. Absolutely, no, for sure. <laughs> and I want to work with you in an advisory council for that. You know, that's that's part. That's another experiment that I need your help on. Put put me in. I mean, I'm redefining it. I'm redefining what it means to be a yeah. Jew in America because it needs to be redefined. Absolutely, and the 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 working definitions are shaped by and and supportive of white supremacy in ways that um like one are violent to others but also are destroying the jewish community from the inside out so you know i don't allow people to call me a jew of color i mean just really quickly me my mother and my children are all three different races on our birth certificate mm. <laughs> yeah my mother probably is still negro. says negro yeah i'm black and my kids were african-american on our birth certificates nobody asked me what I wanted on my kids' birth certificates. They just put it there. And anytime America has different ideas about race, they call us something different and we never get to determine what we want to be called. We never get that. I don't recall voting for black or African. I don't, this is a label that somebody else gave me, right? Now it's Jew of color or person of color. I'm not of color. I'm black. You know why I'm black? Because that's what is on census records. That during slavery, you were black. America has an issue with black people. I mean, they might they be slightly issues, irritated a, by but, people of color, but they really have problems with black people. A specific right? focus. <laughs> exactly. Really, really have problems with Some black about people. It. It's a whole different thing. And anytime you can call me a person of color, you don't have to deal with my blackness. You have to start dealing with black and white. You have to start dealing with what happened there. And so when you call me a Jew of color, you have to call me a black Jew because white Jews you don't even really hear the word white. They're either like they're like Ashkenazi or they're Jews. But for me, I'm black. I'm a black Jew. You, I need a qualifier of some sort. Right. You don't get to take black out of it because you don't want to be white. You don't get to make yourself more comfortable by calling me a Jew of color. And I tell them all the time, you you cast your lot in with white America when you got here. You shouldn't have did that because black people and Anglos already had a whole thing going on before you even there, got there here. Was, there was something happening. <laughs> you got involved in it because you became white and you got involved in it. And then what ended up happening is now their fears are your fears. When in reality, it has nothing to do with you. Now you have Nazis mobilizing in Florida and you have people marching around in Charleston, San Jose will not replace us. It's a lot going on with the definition of you know, black and white and of color. And, you know, how white are you if white people want to kill you? Right. Well, and there's this, I've, I heard someone recently define as the difference between privilege and power. You can have access to the benefits of white supremacy without having the power to determine what white supremacy does. Yep. Um, and that, I think, is a pretty accurate uh, yeah. breakdown of that. Um, so Chris. Yeah. Yeah. We, so we, I, I mean, we honestly, can talk this about is, this. Yeah, is yeah. Now, this, my, this, this is the conversation. This is a different podcast, but, but I'm glad it happened in this one. But I, I want to just, uh, to bring this back to the work of this experiment, mm -hmm. you know, part part of the this metaphor of this experiment kind of has the connotations of the cold hard facts of science. And what we're getting at now are some of the ways that, you know, faith practice, spiritual practice, the structures of faith shape your work and and you know other people's work in this experiment. I'm curious for you, like what what are the parts? When the reporter asks, there has to be something else other than arranging the chairs and lighting a barbecue. And at its baseline, that is all it is. As you've done that over this years, what has that informed for you in your sense of what happens, you know, in between those chairs and in the air above the barbecue and the, the sacred space that you're creating? Trust. 
all about trust. We don't trust each other anymore. We have to get back to trusting each other. You know, people will ask me, hey, do you have a gun? Do you take a gun with you? Do you wear a bulletproof vest? Absolutely not. It's 100 fucking degrees in Chicago. In <laughs> I would die. Like, are you serious? I don't even wear shoes. Are you asking me if I wear a bulletproof vest? No, I don't, right? And the thing is, sometimes we don't give each other the credit that we deserve. We become afraid of each other. I don't want to believe that some other mother's son is an animal and they just kill moms with impunity because that's just who they are now. I don't want to believe that. I want to believe that everybody tried to raise their kids. They did the best they could, just like I did until I learned otherwise. But I'm going into it with that belief that if I talk to this boy the way that I talk to my son, I'm going to get the same reaction. Some people won't even say it. They won't even they won't even make the demand because I'm too afraid to. Why are you that? Why? Why are you so afraid? Who made you this so scared of your own kids? Who made you this afraid of your own people? You're watching too much of the news. Somebody somewhere right now is scared of your kids like you're scared of theirs. And you're saying, hey, you know, my kids aren't into that. I got a good kid. You think we don't all think we got good kids? You think everybody is just like, you know, my son's a piece of no, people don't do that. Everybody believes that they have a good kid because we all want to believe we were the best parents that we could be. We did the best we could, right? I can't treat you as if your mother was a bad mother, as if you don't know anything and I'm the only one that's enlightened and I don't behave that way. I trust you not to murder me. That's what I do. And you trust me to not turn you into the police. Okay. You see what I'm saying? And that's what, a foundation you can yeah. build from. Yeah. And what right. you're describing is is like mothering in this larger sense, right? Because I think that's even part of the problem, the, w- the way we individualize our notions of of nurturing, right? Like the idea that one person or two people are the sole responsibility of all of how you turn out, right? Like the erasure of the proverbial village, right? That 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 people are communally and societally conditioned to be the people that they are. Mothering as a verb. Right. Like when people say, like, they'll call me in the summer and be like, hey, you know, what you doing? Well, I'm I'm mommy. I'm on the block mommy. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's what we are. That's what we're doing. And and it's important that it's everybody's responsibility to step up to that mothering plate. Like, everybody it's not just women's responsibility. No, right? like, everybody, the whole community has to do this. Because people can say, hey, it takes a village to raise a child. But then they can say, you know what? I don't want to be bothered with nobody else's kids. Everybody needs to figure out what they're going to do with their kids. Mm-hmm. And No. And if the parents at home would just that, 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 that. Exactly. You know. That's not. But you, so you can't talk about this whole village thing if you don't believe in that. Also, that came from the news, too. This is like some Reaganism, Clintonism, you know, neoliberalism of like welfare mother queens are the, the, the problem of society. So, yeah, yeah we, we, are, we are really in it. Single mm-hmm. moms are ruining mm-hmm. the world. And it's kind of like, you have to get out here sometimes. And you know, I've learned like some kids because of this system, you know how many mothers are locked up now? Mm. Black women is the, the fastest yes. growing uh, population of, of incarceration. They're taking us out. And sometimes you are going to run across a couple kids that don't even know how to be kids because they never had a parent. Mm-hmm. And you have to teach them how to be a kid. You have to make them feel secure. You have to make them feel like, you know, you're, you care for them. You love them. You have to give them all of the things that they've never had. You know, we never think about it like that. There are people who don't have kids, but there are kids who don't have parents. 
And it's our job to be there for those kids. Mm. So I, I think I have one last thread that I feel like everything you said really goes into. So one, I'm going to try to be concise. I, I'm a, I'll be talking a lot, so I'm going to try to make it make sense. I just, so, just go ahead. <laughs> just, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one moved by this last notion of like the collective nurturing and mothering. I'm also really moved by your personal experience that shaped how you do this work of like living at this unique intersection and how also this like faith lineage that has these notions of accountability and responsibility prompt you into the work. I also think about the the education you say that you're doing. So like the plan around the like the basically the teaching of we all cousins and like what does that mean? Or or the 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 teaching with the three to four year olds to start the conversation around guns. All of this is absorbent in me. And what I'm thinking about is the notion of transformation and where you see that. Because I think we can kind of simplify that if we just had enough food or if everybody just had a house, it would all stop. And there's some truth to that. Like a big portion of it would go down, but there also is a way that I think we have to be real about the fact that our people are one, just people and people are contradictory, but two, our people are growing up in a violent society and particularly in, in a violent environment where they don't have enough and that gets internalized, right? So at the biggest level, our state says when somebody does something wrong, what we do is have punitive retribution, right? Uh-huh. Like justice uh-huh. or the, the making right is to retaliate. And you said to start this conversation, to bring it full circle, you said the cycle begins with this notion of retaliation. So I'm, I'm curious in these circles, in these classes with young people and even talking to parents, because a lot of parents say somebody hit you, hit them back, right? Uh-huh. Like that, that, that is very That's normalized. That's when it starts. And so where do you see the actual transformation about being restorative around, you know, having these trust-based relationships where retribution, retaliation is not the actual philosophy that we're internalizing and perpetuating from our space based off all this work that you're doing? That was a giant question. You said, go ahead. But no, it's okay. I got you. Transformation is is what I'm really asking. I I feel like transformation starts when it's less hopelessness. When we see small things start to work, then we can tackle bigger things, right? You know, when um, we were on the block and we got the lot that we're on now, people were like, oh, no, it's no way they're ever going to give you that vacant lot. Like, you're never going to be able to get it. They're never going to give it to you. It's a vacant lot. <laughs> like, it's worth like $12, right? But even a vacant lot was a lofty goal. And when we got it, It was a victory because we got this filthy, vacant lot, right? But it was like, for once, we actually got something that we wanted. When we vote, we don't get what we want. We never get what we want, but we did this time. And then when we did that, the question was, okay, well, now what do we want? What do we want next? Let's go for the next thing. What is it? Sometimes we just have to start with those small victories to restore hope. Because I feel like we don't have a lot of hope. I think it's like, you know, people are just here, just waiting to not be here anymore. You know, I tell people all the time, these kids aren't homicidal, they're suicidal. Mm, not, mm-hmm. There's a difference. I mean, what is there to live for? I mean, you've given them nothing to live for. So, I mean, they don't have the courage to just, you know, step in front of a train or something like that. So I'm going to go kill somebody on live and 
I know that their people are going to come and kill me. I know that they are. That was, that's the plan all along for them to come and get me. And now all of this will be over. There is a hopelessness that, I mean, you cannot imagine when I see it. It's just like, oh my God, like first things first, we got to work on this. And I think small victories, small changes, we got to start somewhere. And I appreciate you guys giving me this platform and inviting me to be here because this is kind of where it starts, right? More people hear about this, more we're talking about it. It's changing the conversation. It might inspire somebody to start something like this on their block, start doing this with the kids on their block or something like that. I don't know, but at least it's out there now. More people know about it and they know it's easy. Yeah. Some chairs and a barbecue. Yeah, that's it. And everybody eats together. To that point, as a closing, to be very tangible, you know, because one, people could just do it. But then I think there's also a, a power, but also a potential like chaos and like linking up. And so if somebody said, I got a lawn chair and a grill and some time and, I, you know, I'm, I'm down. Is there a, a space of partnership, of learning, of oh, yeah, I'll come exchange? I'll come <laughs> with you because the idea is I'm not everywhere. I'm not superwoman, right? You kinda, you're pretty close. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I'm not superwoman. Not, not a fair burden. Okay, yeah. You're great woman, I'm man. Not, or something. You're some woman. <laughs> I'll be that. At least, just let me be a woman. I'm good with that. Yeah, exactly. But um, I feel like you know sometimes people it's like oh you know if they're doing this or they're doing that you know then why are things getting worse because they're doing it you're not doing it all of us have to do it. Everybody has to do it. You can't look at the work that other people are, are doing and say, hey, you know what? That's not working. No, it's not enough people doing it. That's why it looks like it's not working. It's working for a few people because this is a great big city. This is a great big country we live in. It takes all of us to make real change. Yeah, that finite abundance thing. Yeah, like I can show you how to do this, right? I'm not going to come and do it for you, but I can show you how to do it. That's what I think we need in this city. We just need more nosy parents. <laughs> <laughs> that's what this all boils down to. So that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. That was my last question. I just have one more thing I want to offer you. Um, one, thank you so much for this time and this conversation. I'm really honored and grateful. Oh, man, I'm getting kind of... I'm really honored and grateful to be able to commune with you and sit and learn from you and, and hear from you, but also... Before this conversation, your work and your impact has been so felt by people that like you've never met, that have never even come to your block, oh, right? Thank and you. so, personally, to kind of go back to the, you know, I was, I kind of was joking, but like, have been in part of this movement to talk about we need to transform the society, and actually, this institution is not apt, but is actually hurting and is making it worse, and we need to talk about how we get to something else, and then trying to have that very difficult very heady conversation with people for years now. You have been the example to be able to teach, be able to com com be in community, to be able to talk to people. Um, and, you know, our show, ourselves, we were a part of an effort in 2016 that I don't know if you heard of called Freedom Square. Uh, yeah, which was a, I heard yeah, of so, so that was us. Uh, so across the street from a, a CPD torture facility. And as we're out there 24 hours a day, not knowing what we're doing, Sitting in lunch chairs, running around. <laughs> oh, you had lunch chairs too. I would have bought had, you a barbecue grill. <laughs> we had plenty <laughs> of grills. The, gr uh, the, grill the, grill, the grill is what we had. It was yeah. other things that we were missing, like like 
toilets, but, <laughs> but oh, yeah, I, have, I have some I have some camping toilets. I could oh, oh, OK. Yep. See, you're prepared. Yep. And so, you know, as we're sitting there doing something that felt new or felt theoretical, um, never having met you before, you were an example. Um, and that work changed my life. It, 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 I, I know it impacted, affected a lot of people in our movement and in our community. Um, and so this is a conversation that I'm really honored to have because a lot of times there's a divide, I think, or not a divide, but a but a a, a, a space, a void uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. Um, of this real life work that is as important as I think anything happening in our country right now. Um, and so I, I just have deep reverence, appreciation, honor, and, and you, I am certain that your work is going to affect generations long beyond our lifetimes. And so, um, you know, you, you are a special gift and treasure to our, our city and world. And uh, yeah, I, I can't say enough how, how much honor and how much appreciation I have for you and this time and your work at large. Thank you. You invite me and I'll come back. I promise. Oh, yeah. No, 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 now you linked in. Now, now we got the email. It's over with. Don't... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your brilliance and your time and your generosity. Um, how can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? Oh, www.ontheblock.org is the website. Or you can find us at Mass Chicago on Facebook. We're, we're always on there doing something. So, yeah, there are ways to get in touch with us. And I mean, pretty much everybody in the city of Chicago has my phone number. So there's a lot of ways to get in touch with mm-hmm. me. So, yes, yeah, great. <laughs> Tamar, thank you again. Um, Thanks, guys. Anything else you need, just give me a call. I'm always down to talk. For sure. We appreciate you. Folks, the one and only Tamar Manasa. Yeah, yeah. All right, we ready to 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 get to it. You ready for this this peer review? I have my papers. Hoping I don't offend all my peers. <laughs> you break this down, Eva. You back with us? I'm back with you. I don't have my papers, but I'm here. For those listening at home, Damon's been leaning into uh, radical newscaster mode over the last couple episodes, <laughs> yeah. and he has like a, a stack of. <laughs> shuffling sheets it has like this like investigative reporter like so Uh you said on february 22nd (laughs) yeah (laughs) so eva as we head into this peer review what jumped out to you from the conversation you all know i loved it when tamar gave like the recipe for mask and one of those ingredients was audacity i think through this interview tamar's commitment, love, care, and audacity just really shine through. There's this idea that in order to tackle something as large as say gun violence, that, you know, we need to come up with the perfect solution, the plans, the blueprint, we need to test it. You know, we need to put it in the lab in this very particular way. When Tamar shows us that you can simply start by starting now. You know, I mean, I think that there are these elements that are so important, this element of trust. Tamar says, I trust you not to murder me and you trust me not to turn you into the police. What we learn from these experiments is that somebody started this by going outside and doing something. Yeah, no, I loved that distillation of it down to trust, especially in a conversation where, you know, we got into some of the subtleties and differences and contradictions of conversations around what does it mean to identify as a capital A abolitionist or as she put it, like be part of the, you know, the defund people at its core, 
that idea of I trust you not to harm me and you trust me that if I do harm you, you won't punish me through the carceral state feels like what we're advocating for and what abolition is fighting for at its core. Um, so, you know, regardless of what label people identify with, like that's, that is the tools for transformation felt so um, distilled and clear in a way that I think a lot of people who spend a lot of time tweeting and talking about abolition could actually really learn from. Yeah. I think that that trust and then this like discourse thread really is getting into, you know, y'all know me. I love to get make it meta. <laughs> and so for those who who are just, you know, tuning in, not only are we trying to talk to these experiments, but we are trying to experiment in ourselves in making this new world more possible. And so one of the things we need to build the muscle in is dialogue and discourse and idea sharing where it's not homogeneous. We have built a lot of practice of talking to and within our movement and talking to people to bring them into movement. Uh, but how do we actually have generative, collaborative, cooperative conversations with folks that may not be ideologically aligned when their practice and politics are actually much more congruent with the world that we're trying to build. And so, you know, the moments around like naming herself as not a defund person or um, using vocabulary that I think the like ideologically staunch would like turn their nose at. So for example, in abolitionist space, the, the, no the notion of community policing um, has become faux pas. And like with, good analysis, right? Like we don't want to replicate and recreate and that formula will be co-opted by the state and just become policing in a different form, right? But if you listen to what she was saying, when she was using the language of community policing, it wasn't what I think, you know, a young Instagram or, you know, abolitionist chic person might think of when they hear that. What she was saying was our community policing is cop watching. Our community policing is the community actually protecting ourselves and monitoring that the action of the militarized police and just like that as a lesson of the the nuggets the nuance the complexity that comes from just even these types of dialogues and creating channels for this type of exchange in in experience terminology practices um i think gets us closer to be able to talk to all people because the the truth is most of the people that we're gonna have to talk to are not going to be involved in movement politics and like local ella baker style community organizing even if that would be the dream of the world that we want uh so yeah it was just really really exciting particularly on like for a chicago-based conversation we brought it back to the crib to be talking about the, the real local elements of the community of the South Side of 75th Street of Inglewood towards these theoretical frameworks that we're trying to establish to transform the world. Yeah, I feel like we both really got in our bag. You got in your 75th and sewer bag and I got in my <laughs> rabbi bag. And it was just like, this is a 10. I don't know if anyone will want to listen to this, but what a joy for the two of us to have, you know? <laughs> Eva, anything else that, uh, that stuck out to you or things you, you've been thinking about after hearing the conversation? I mean, I just feel like so much of Tamar's um, praxis really speaks to a lot of what interrupting criminalization and Project Nia work towards, which is that there is a place for everyone in this work. And like Damon says, we're not all going to approach it with the same ideas or even end game. But right here, right now, when you are feeling unsafe on your block, you know, you are in this together with your neighbors. That's just the reality of the situation. And I, 
I think so much of what mask demonstrates um, is that you can find places for people in that work and you can grow stronger for it. But not only are we in this doing it together, but we are in this together. You know, my welfare is your welfare, is the community, the town, the city, the earth's welfare. And so that sense of belonging and community, a bigger we, that sense of collectivity is something that I think really hits home at interrupting criminalization and and what we do and trying to find space for all of us to move forward together. Yeah, no, that, 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 that really resonates. And I think with that proximity and being, I think, more directly engaged and impacted by the violence that sometimes can become theoretical uh, in some political spaces. We got detail that that we usually you know don't get. So just the description. One thing that that she named a bunch of times, while still saying you know I'm not a card carrying abolitionist is what I want to like call it. Um, as a non card carrier, um, just describing that the police make it worse, right? Like we are in the place where you know folks' imaginary of what violence is, is happening um, in, in real ways. And to be able to describe that just day-to-day policing is actually making it worse. And that is something that like people need to wrestle with. Um, one of the things that I think, again, like privilege and proximity can make a lot of these conversations abstract for us. So you may even get like people say, how do we have abolitionist solutions to gang violence, right? But through tomorrow's real experience, unless you're really from Chicago and present and paying attention and connected in certain ways, you wouldn't even understand that like the gang construct is obsolete and in many ways artificial for folks. And she can contribute something unique in being able to tell the specifics of here on 75th street. I have, you know, 14 through 17 year olds that might be BD, might be GD, might be stone. For some people listening to this, that may mean nothing to you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but to say that like all of those people exist, in close proximity and this like mythical, you know, dark structure that is the gang that we need to invest hundreds of millions of dollars to to destroy doesn't even actually exist in practice. There are no meetings in the way that people think about it. The proximity to be there and to talk about the nuance or the the way in which the terrain is shifting in the community and the way that violence is actually occurring is such a powerful contribution to the thinking that we need to do without being present and being able to know people's parents, people's grandparents, or that some young people may not have parents in the way that, you know, Tamar is mothering for her community, right? Like without that localized knowledge of her naming, what did the 16 year old go through to bring them to this point? The solutions that we theorize, hypothesize are always going to be limited and short-sighted. And so just was really, you know, was really fed by just, how this practice brought a new type of knowledge to the world. Any last takeaways from this conversation before we get on out of here? If there's one thing that I'd love listeners to take away from today's time in the lab, it's something that Tamara said that's really stuck with me since the conversation. And she said, I've never gone hungry or broke trying to feed somebody else. Mm, that's a bar. Hell yeah. <laughs> we we did the like like screwed up like good verse face on that yeah. one. The like ooh, ooh. <laughs> that hits. <laughs> um, and also like abolitionist chic is going to come back up. Because... Oh yeah, no, it's an aesthetic. It's a font. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to sound curmudgeon or 
So always check me on that. Like, I don't want to be like, you new kids. That's definitely not the energy I'm trying to bring. <laughs> we are officially curmudgeons. We're talking about the youngsters on Instagram and completely relating to each other. So we are in that club firmly. Oh, no. Uh, well, to be even older, I want to talk about the news. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, another point that she was really crisp on that came up time and time again is an element of the state and state violence and information that like I think she had a lot of direct experience with is the news. I think a lot of times in political spaces we talk about national news a lot, but we don't talk about the 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 political impact of local news channels and particularly here in Chicago, the way in which violence has been crafted into this like stat-based villainous war game narrative um, and really dehumanized and flattened in really violent ways, not only for, you know, opponents or like the, the white supremacist imaginary, but I think in really internally harmful ways, the way in which the news broadcast information and the lack of solutions to community creates a type of despair, creates a type of um, fractionalism and anti-communalism and also this reinvestment into state authority of not describing as she's names like, Hey, a lot of these people who were eighth graders had their high school closed and never went to high school. Right. Like the fact that that is just not a part of the everyday here's yellow caution tape. Here's red caution tape. Here's a badge. Here's yellow caution tape. Here's red caution tape. Here's a badge. Like the, the clockwork orange esque like programming that that does to a community is traumatic. And it's something that like frustrates me a lot. It like makes me really sad. It's something that I think inspires our work of trying to like figure out how do we create infrastructure to counter the violence of the local news. But I think it, it gets erased or talked past a lot. I think we look right at politicians and not talk about the, the media infrastructure as a, you know, a corporate state apparatus that is like, reinforcing some some false imaginaries or, or some some violent narratives and so it was really really helpful to see like a communal information network right like news from the from the lawn chair right and just hearing that extra level of detail but two i think she was really again just crisp and really there was a real brilliance in how she consistently was naming the news as to why our community is not more prepared to build new solutions right now. We need new information channels from the ground is like one of the needs people need to be experimenting towards. Hence this low, low pod right here. You know, hey, hey, hey. (laughs) (laughs) And another really poignant thing, I would suspect that some of her spiritual grounding kind of got into the like the interiority of the psychology of this. But just talking about the, the reality of despair and almost framing it in, in mental health language of regardless of what drill rap may like project or the way the news talks about it, these young people actually aren't homicidal, they're suicidal. That just really stuck with me. And, you know, I've, I've heard like having nothing to live for discourse before, but there was a real empathy, but also directness into which she was naming like, you know. There is a crisis <laughs> that is beyond retaliation or your block and my block. There, there is an a internal intelligence of this is a way towards my destruction that young people are acting out and that we should be talking about this gun violence, not as some monstrous other, but right in conversation with 
opioid addiction and overdose or mental health or talking about gun violence in conversation with suicide and other notions of mental health despair and like the destruction of the human spirit and like mental well-being uh it's sad right like i'm feeling it as as i'm you know reflecting on it and processing it but i think in terms of us understanding how to heal and repair and to, to create transformative systems it's not just about like conflict resolution, right? Or anger management, or it's about these beefs, um, that there is a, a deeper human tragedy that's, that's been happening that we are, are not seeing or ignorant to, and particularly the way in which we're informed about it. And again, the way the news communicates the, these tragedies is so inadequate that we're not equipped to respond to like this crisis of our, of our children, of our babies. And so um, there was just, yeah, an, a, an elegance and, and an honest poignance with which she was able to deliver that really heartbreaking truth to us. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of like sobering, challenging realities that get communicated when you're actually listening to the people engaged in the work. But that's the basis from which we can form more experiments and do more work that actually might have a chance at this transformation. All right, well, obviously this conversation was impactful for the three of us. We're so curious about what jumped out to you in your own peer review. What's sticking with you from this conversation? How is it transforming the work that you're doing in your space, whether it's finding a lawn chair or whatever it looks like for you to be building your experiment? Please reach out to us at millionexperiments at gmail.com or on socials at Interrupt Crim and at Ergo Radio. Make sure to subscribe, like, comment, and review One Million Experiments wherever you listen to your podcasts. And, you know, again, this is an experiment that needs growth. So share with your community, listen to it with someone else, start a conversation uh, with someone you wouldn't have otherwise to go further in your reflections. You can always reach us, the catalog of experiments, the deans on how to get your own experiment started in this podcast at millionexperiments.com. All right, Joe. See you in the lab next month with another experiment. Much love to the people. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>